Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negea with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negea he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. After quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot, the Canaanites and the Pezuzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let us part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord, Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived amongst the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Thanks be to God. I suppose most of us are probably accustomed to the idea that uh, promises get broken. Um, it happens so regularly in our world that we're really not even surprised by it. Um, people make a contract, but we're not surprised when they try to get out of that contract or use some simple little loophole to make sure that they don't have to fulfil what they've promised to do. And probably one of the really obvious places that we see promises broken is federal elections. Now, there'll be a load of promises made over the next six months. Do you honestly believe that they think they're going to fulfil those promises? 
well, I don't know, maybe I'm just a little bit too cynical about politics, but you know that half of them won't be fulfilled. You're not sure which half. You hope you know which half it will be. It'll help you with your vote in in the uh, September election. But we know that promises today are broken. Now, I think we have to be careful when we come to thinking about promises because very often we're a little bit cynical about promises that are made and we wonder whether or not they will be fulfilled, whether or not people will keep their promises. And I think, sadly, sometimes that can creep over into our view of God. We can wonder whether or not God will keep his promises. We can be suspicious that, sure, he's made the promise, but can I be certain? Well, our Christian lives ought to be based on the promises that God has made to us in Jesus. See, believing God's promises is not just something that happens in your head. It's something that impacts your life. It's something that should change how it is that you live. I want you to imagine that a friend of yours has promised that they're going to be around to pick you up at 7 o'clock tomorrow night to take you out to the movies. How do I know you've believed that promise? I mean, I can't see inside your head to know whether or not you've believed it. But there's another way of knowing, isn't there? You'll be home and ready at 7 o'clock when they come to pick you up. You'll be dressed, ready to go out to the movies. You'll have your money ready to buy yourself a ticket when you get to the movies. All of your actions will show me that you do believe those promises. And that's the difference that we ought to see in our lives. If we believe the promises that God makes, then we ought to be able to see it, not because we can look inside someone's head, but we can see it by the way that they've shaped their lives. Now we pick up this morning at Genesis chapter 13, and it begins with one of those good problems. Look at what it says, verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything that he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Abraham and his family are now travelling, and there is a large number of them, and a huge amount of livestock travelling with them as well. Substantial herds, substantial people travelling with them as well. And a bit of a quarrel has broken out between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen because when they stay together there's just not enough room for them to be able to feed all of their stock there are too many of them one of those great problems to have isn't it like too many cars to fit in your driveway well there's too many flocks for them to be able to stay together so a choice has to be made they've decided they're going to split up there's no issue between Abraham and Lot they're still family they're still friends But they decide the best thing to do is to head off in different directions. And so Abram says to Lot, look, you choose which way you're going to go and then I'll make my choice after that. But you can choose first. And did you see Lot's choice? Have a look at what it says, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. There's an old saying that all that glitters is not gold. Um, I don't know who it was who said that first, 
But I've got a funny feeling that they may have actually owned a Peugeot 504 at some point in their life. Because that's how I learned that all that glitters is not gold. We, we had to buy a car when we were at Bible college and we had to go for something reasonably cheap. And I went out along Parramatta Road looking for cars and I found it. It was actually much nicer than this one. It had lowered suspension. It was fuel injected. It had a sunroof. It was automatic, electric windows. It was just incredible. I was taken in by this car. We owned it for a year. Cost us thousands of dollars in repairs. And we sold it a year later for $2,000 less than we'd paid for it. I learned very quickly that all that glitters is not gold. See, I was looking at all the wrong things, wasn't I? I mean, it seemed so nice, it seemed so sleek, it handled so well on the few occasions that it actually did drive. But that wasn't what I should have been looking for in a car. Well, I think Lot's been attracted by the bright lights of Sodom, hasn't he? See, what's he chosen to do? I thought we just heard that he's got all of these herds and flocks and all of these people, but he wants to move into the city. Well, that's not going to work, is it? He heads down to Sodom and pitches his, his tents near the city. But Abram has made a very different choice. Did you see where Abram's chosen to go? Uh, here's a map of the land after all of the tribes have moved in there, after Israel have taken possession of it. This is where Lot has chosen to go, to the east. He's moved actually outside of the land that God has promised to give. And this is where Abram chooses to move. Smack dab in the middle of the land that God has chosen to give them. And I think they've made choices based on the promises. See, Lot has headed east. Uh, When you're reading your Old Testament, if you hear that anyone's heading east, it's a bad sign. Things aren't looking good. But Abram has chosen to move right into the centre of the land. The promises that God made to Abram, well, once Abram moves into the land, God says, look around, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. All of this is going to be yours. I'm going to give you the entire land. And in fact, did you see at the end of chapter 13, he almost gives him a kind of pre-inspection tour. He says, walk the whole length and breadth of the land, Abraham. It's going to be yours. It's going to belong to you and to your family. And do you know how we can tell that Abraham believed God? Look at the last verse. He moves there. He pitches his tents there. He's basing his life on the promises that God has made. For the entire length of my life, one of the great trouble spots in the world has been the Middle East. There doesn't seem to be a week go by that there isn't some story of conflict coming out of the Middle East. For the last two years, we've been watching the tragic story of the war in Syria and seeing all kinds of other nations becoming involved there as well. Uh, Back in my childhood, it was Iran and Iraq, who if they weren't fighting each other, they were off fighting somebody else. And then there's the Palestinians and the Israelis. Then there's the fighting that takes place in Lebanon. There's been this constant hum not just through my lifetime, but this constant hum of war in that part of the world, really for thousands of years. Now, at the beginning of chapter 14, we get introduced to this 
unusual story. If you're reading through Genesis, I'm sure when you start reading chapter 14, you think, oh, hang on, what's this doing in here? I think I've made a mistake. I must have skipped a chapter because I'm reading about a war that's taking place. Uh, The war is between the kings of the east in the region that we today would call Iraq and Iran and the kings from on the coast of the Mediterranean. Five kings there warring against these four other kings. And as you read through the story, you think, why am I being told this information? What's this got to do with Abram? And then you see it. Verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So you remember, Lot's in Sodom. And now he's been captured by these kings from the east. He's been dragged off as part of the goods that they've seized from Sodom. So what does Abram do? Well, as Lot's uncle, he goes out to rescue him. Now he's got to be seriously outnumbered, hasn't he? I mean, sure, Abraham may now have a few people working with him, But we're taking on four kings, four nations here. He takes 318 men. I mean, what's he hoping to do? Well, during the night, they attacked the king who had captured Lot. They rescued Lot and took back all of the possessions that these people had stolen from Sodom. I mean, God is clearly with Abraham in this move, isn't he? I mean, he couldn't have done this under any other circumstances. He couldn't have achieved this by himself, not with 318 men, possibly with 3,180 men, but he's not going to do it with 318. But then there's a conversation that takes place between the king of Sodom and Abraham when he returns everything back to the king of Sodom. Look at what it says in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now, do you see what Abram's saying here? Don't misunderstand him. He's not being rude. He's not being disrespectful. He's not telling the king that he can go jump. He's wanting to say to this king, God's made a promise to me. And I've believed that promise. I've raised my hand to God. I've said yes to God and the promise that he's made to me. God has promised that he will give me this entire land. And with the greatest of respect, king, I don't want to take anything from you because I don't want you to say that you made me rich. There will only be one person who will make me rich, and that will be the God of heaven and earth. It's one more very strange conversation that takes place. Um, have a look there in verse number 18. Completely out of, the, out of the blue, we hear about Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, and if for some reason he brought out bread and wine. We're told that he's a priest of the God Most High. Now, up to this point... Abraham's the only one who we know who believes in the God most high. But look at what it says. 
that he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, who in the world is this king? I mean, Melchizedek, the very name means king of righteousness. And we're also told that he is the king of shalom, that he's the king of peace. Well, strange thing is, we've got no idea who he is. No idea where he comes from. Never gets mentioned again in the story part of the Bible. It comes up again in Psalm number 110 gets mentioned there in Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the pages of the New Testament. It's one of those psalms that the people of Israel clung onto because they were hanging out for the king that God promised he would send. And there's this description in that psalm. No, not that verse. It says this in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The saviour who was going to come and rescue God's people would be in the order of Melchizedek. He'd be a priest and a king like Melchizedek. And again, it's not until we reach the pages of the New Testament that we figure out who that saviour is. That saviour will be Jesus who comes in the order of Melchizedek. But after that great demonstration of faith by Abraham in chapter 14... Chapter 15 is another one of those kind of disappointing notes. God appears to Abram in a vision and confirms to him the promises that he's made. He said, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a huge number of descendants. Because Abraham had been faithful and chosen not to take the reward from the king of Sodom. He's waiting for God to fulfill these promises. But Abram knows that time's marching on. He's an old man. He's well over 90 by now. I mean, is God really going to fulfil these promises? Uh, Look at what Abram says in verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant from my household will be my heir. God had promised Abram descendants, and he doesn't have any. And the clock's ticking. Time is running out. The promises that God made really hinge on whether or not Abraham will have descendants. I mean, it's hard to say that you've become a great nation when you haven't even had one child. It's hard for Abram's family to take possession of the land when there are no family. It's actually going to have to get passed on to one of his servants. But look at what God does. Verse 5. He took him outside and said... Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God says, that's how many descendants you'll have. You won't even be able to count the number of your descendants. And look at what it says in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. He believed what God had promised. And do you know how we know that he believed what God promised? He acted 
on what God had promised. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That verse gets quoted three times in the pages of the New Testament. Abram was declared right with God, not because of his hard work, not because of all of the things that he did, not because of sacrifices that he made, not because of obedience to the law. Abram is declared righteous on the basis of believing God, on the basis of faith. And that's the same way we're made right with God. This is what Paul says to the Romans. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. I think the thing that stands out in this passage is the difference between believing the promises and not believing the promises. It's the contrast between Abram and Lot, isn't it? Abram, in this chapter, repeatedly acts in light of the promises. That's how you know he's believed. He does things that tell you that in his head he believes. He knows what God has promised and he's going to let those promises control his life. Lot knows what God has promised... Lot knows what Abraham will receive, but the bright lights have taken him away. He's headed off down to Sodom, and we will see him again in the story. But Abram knows to be patient. Abram knows to wait. Abram knows that God will fulfill his promises. Can you imagine a 95-year-old man waiting to have kids? I mean, he must be thinking to himself, this is crazy, this is not going to happen. But that's not what he's thinking to himself. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to trust God on this one. I've got no idea how he's going to do it, but I believe and I'm going to trust God. Abram remains patient. must have been very tempting for him when he brought all of that stuff back and dropped it at the feet of the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says, you know what? Take the lot. I just want to keep my people. You can have everything else. And Abram says, thanks but no thanks. God's got much more in store for me, so I won't be needing this, thank you very much. God's promises shape the way that he acts. Do God's promises make that kind of difference in your life? Do they change the way that you live? God has promised us that one day, Jesus will come again to judge this world, and one day, Jesus will take us to be with him for all eternity. Does that make a difference to your life? I know you believe it. Well, I assume you believe it. That's why you're here on Sunday, isn't it? I'm sure that it's here. But how does it shape your actions? Does it make a difference to the way that you handle your money? Does it make a difference to the plans and the hopes that you have? Does it make a difference to the values that you have? Does it make a difference to the way that you treat other people? Does it make a difference to the attitudes and the values that you want to instill in your children? See, I think we can often be a little bit like Lot, can't we? We can be a bit distracted by those bright lights. We can know the promises that God has made, 
But we actually go off looking for things in other directions. We forget about the promises. We end up making bad choices because of those bright lights. We end up thinking that all that glitters is gold. But I think we need to be convinced that God has something extraordinary in store for us. We need to be convinced that this life, in a sense, is just waiting to see what it is that God has in store for us. And we ought to act like we're waiting to see what God has in store for us. Not that we've found it all here, but that we know that there's better to come. As you go through this week, have a think about how those promises that God has made make a difference to you. Make a difference to the way that you speak to people or treat people. Make a difference to how you handle those finances. Make a difference in the relationships that you have.